it's an interesting thought experiment to present themselves as completely not beholden to the algorithm. And thus, you know, the, the argument goes that since we don't rely on, you know, controversies and flare-ups to get traffic like Facebook or like Twitter does, there's this baseline atmosphere that's set where things are likely to be less inflammatory, right, is the implication. And I'd argue that that's probably not true, given that Substack writers are often completely beholden to Twitter traffic to grow their audience. And Substack as a brand has also benefited enormously from big Twitter controversy. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 4th, 2021. We're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, Lawfare's miniseries on disinformation and misinformation. There are a lot of terrible things happening in the world right now, so we thought we'd give you a little break this week by discussing something lighter. Substack. The newsletter service is the new cool thing in the journalism world. And like any newly popular service, it's already running into questions around content moderation. I talked with Lawfare's deputy managing editor, Jacob Schultz, who wrote about Substack's content moderation policy earlier this month, along with host of the China Talk podcast, Jordan Schneider, who uses Substack to send out his China Talk newsletter and filled us in on the platform's nuts and bolts. So why is Substack so popular right now anyway? Does it help writers step outside the unhealthy dynamics that help spread disinformation and discontent on social media? Or does it just play into those dynamics further? And what might the platform's content moderation policies leave to be desired? It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 4th. Lawfare enters the Substack discourse. There has been a lot of conversation about Substack. If you read Twitter and follow a lot of journalists, it is often the topic du jour. Just to start us off, I think it probably makes sense to ask the most basic of questions. So, Jordan, what is Substack and what do you use it for? Sure. So, uh, full disclosure, I've had a few conversations with some of the folks at Substack about working there maybe a year and a half ago. And I have on the chinatalk.substack.com Substack, in which I cover US-China policy and Chinese technology, I have made maybe $7,000 from uh, subscriptions over the past two years. So getting those disclaimers out of the way, Substack is a way for people on the internet to make money from their writing, primarily by creating paid email newsletters. So the Substack business model is they have a platform Form that sort of takes care of all the back end, whether it be email, email list moderation or a publisher or dealing with payment information, they take 10% of that cut and give you as a writer the ability to sort of just press play and start selling your writing online. And over the past few years, particularly in 2020, some of the most popular English language writers have left their prestige outlets and gone and taken their audiences not to South Beach, but to Substack, in turn roiling many uh, many a newsroom about to what extent this model is, is going to turn into the future of news. Yeah, I think that this is this podcast is our lawfare's entry into the content about Substack industry, which is pretty substantial. And honestly, I think I've I've read more about Substack recently than I have actually on Substack. So that cues up my my next question, which, as you say, Substack has just exploded in popularity. Feels like every few weeks there's a high profile writer who sort of 
flees their institutional perch and the constraints of that and gets a Substack. So Andrew Sullivan at New York Magazine, uh, or formerly of Glenn Greenwald, formerly of The Intercept, Matt Iglesias at Box. When the news broke this week that Jeff Bezos was stepping down as CEO of Amazon, I saw some people joke that he was moving to Substack. <laughs> so I have my, my own theories on this, but I'm interested for both of your thoughts. Um, and Jacob, I'll turn to you first. Why is it that you think that Substack has all of a sudden exploded in popularity? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll defer to Jordan as I myself don't have a Substack. But I think from my perspective, there's a few different maybe economic forces that are all coinciding at once. So the first is like a sad one. It's like the collapse of prestige journalism and the overall denigration in value that people have for journalism, right? So local newsrooms are collapsing, but also in various different ways, the financial models that journalism uses to sustain itself are collapsing, right? So that happens. And then you get this this sort of weird way for journalists to make money that's different, but also maybe escape some of the pressures that traditional journalism is is beholden to, right? So that's one. And then the second thing is there is, we can debate how much this is a true thing or a good thing, but there is a broader movement, I think, toward what some people would call like the passion economy, right? So there's there's ways to make money now that you, let's say you're Jordan and you're really interested in writing a lot about China, or let's say you're someone who's really interested in in movies and you just want to write about movies, right? There's increasingly lots of different ways to monetize that without having to go through, you know, the traditional gatekeepers, right? So that I think in some ways is the appeal of Substack. And the other thing, honestly, is there is a really dramatic coincidence of timing between Substack's explosion and COVID, right? So people are at home all the time, probably reading lots and lots of different things. So that on the one hand opens up, you know, the opportunity for more just consumption and more more news and more analysis. But on the other hand, it also, I think, and, and we'll talk about this later, Substack, there's a way in which Substack sort of markets itself as an intimate product, right? Writers are writing directly to you. And sometimes they're burying their soul and burying their their personal life and writing directly to you. So there's a way that I think it, consciously or not, it addresses some of that need to like feel like you're a part of a smart conversation or you have intimacy in your life through Substack. A few things about the kind of dynamics of the writers opting into it. I think there are sort of two types in general of folks who who have opted in. You have the sort of, you know, top players at these prestige institutions, which, you know, sort of like LeBron James are worth more than the maximum salary that the New York Times or the Los Angeles Lakers or the uh, or the Atlantic would be willing to pay them. So, the kind of ceiling on those folks' income gets increased by being able to more directly monetize their their audience. And then for sort of like the the middle income bracket of the Substack earners, a lot of these sort of very niche topics, for instance, uh, Sinicism, which was a, a, a daily Chinese politics newsletter, which helped launch Substack in the first place, you know, aren't necessarily big enough niches to, you know, have a staff reporter for a prestige outlet, but there is an audience out there that's interested in them for personal reasons or business reasons that is willing to kind of pay money for for content. The other thing I wanted to say is, Jacob, you talked about the kind of the intimacy of 
of the platform. I imagine another thing about COVID, which made it easier for people to opt into this, is sort of the camaraderie of being in a newsroom every day is lost a little bit when you're stuck at home and being on Zoom all the time. And lastly, it's important to recognize that Substack is a is primarily an email-based platform. And you know, the fact that you are getting emails from these writers that show up right next to your messages from your 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 friends and parents, as opposed to having a more impersonal relationship going to, you know, the Atlantic.com uh, or New York Times.com does definitely lend itself to this interaction. I mean, if you respond to a Substack email, it will go directly into the inbox of uh, whoever wrote it, which you know very quickly leads to these sorts of connections because you you are able to interact much more directly with the people who are who are feeding you this content. The points you both make about the intimacy are are really interesting and reminds me a lot of the conversation in the early days around podcasts, right? That people can sort of build these parasocial relationships with podcast hosts because you have someone who's, it seems like, is talking directly to you. I mean, with a podcast, you're literally like blocking out the rest of the world as far as hearing goes so so you can listen. Is there anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's completely right. So the other thing, other than just the general similarities, is it's really this sort of unbounded, much more unbounded form of communication, right? So a podcast, part of the virtue, part of why I like podcasts is it feels like someone is talking to you, right? It's not this super prepared thing that's been, you know, edited, which we'll talk about later and has been really thought through. It's it's people talking, having a conversation. And I think there's something to the sort of conversational and unbounded tone that that newsletter writers often take on that that people find appealing in the same way. So this is a podcast about disinformation and content moderation. Jacob, why on earth are we talking about a newsletter service? <laughs> it's a good question. So I think there's a bunch of different reasons. So, th- so the first is that there is a theory, and Evelyn Dweck, who is you know your Arbors of Truth co-host, is is one of the the torchbearers of this theory, and I think it's quite true, which is basically that every online platform, regardless of what it is, if it has any sort of thing that involves people speaking, is inevitably going to have content moderation problems, right? So, at first, a lot of the attention about content moderation goes to the big platforms, right? People are worried about Facebook, people are worried about Twitter. But there's this whole other universe of things beyond that that do have their own content moderation problem, right? There's even like Peloton, which is the the online exercise program, has big problems with QAnon on Peloton, right? And so Substack is another example of this Wait, phenomenon. How? Oh, so there's if you go on Peloton, there's you can put a little hashtag below your name, which is like the I don't remember the exact way that they describe it. I don't have a Peloton, but it's a way of, you know, identifying yourself with some sort of group. And there were Charlie Warzel at the Times was a big person who was documenting this after the election. In particular, there were a lot of QAnon hashtags and and like hashtag stop the steal on Peloton. Right. So everyone inevitably has their has their problems. And Substack is an example of this in a much more direct form. So Substack obviously is is just speech, unlike Peloton, which is an exercise product, the product for Substack is speech. So there's some way in which it, it's a it's illustrative of the fact that everyone has their own problems. So what are those problems, right? So Substack, it, it grew at first. It was great. People were really happy about it. But then there, there started to be these sort of small problems where there was a, an entire Substack, for example, devoted to doing, quote, analysis of fraudulent election results in 2020, which is obviously completely 
baseless and it had a huge surge in popularity. It was number three on Substack's leaderboard and all that stuff, right? So I think in some ways Substack is is a good case study for the theory that a platform's gonna grow, it's gonna get popular, and then inevitably it will start to have these these content moderation problems. And I hope we can talk more about that. But then in response to that, they've they've sort of put their flag in the ground with a an interesting position on content moderation, which we'll talk about later. And so you you wrote about this on Lawfare about a month ago and made the argument that it's it's difficult to describe what Substack is. I mean, we we just described what it is. It's a newsletter platform. So what do you what do you mean by that and what's the relevance of that to these content moderation questions? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the relevance. So I think consciously or not a lot of the ways that we think about our expectations for what a platform will do in terms of moderating content is is shaped by the way in which we classify it, right? So take Facebook as is the easiest example. So Facebook uses a recommendation algorithm, pretty heavy-handed one, to to you know influence the things that appear in your newsfeed, and that's what you as a Facebook user see. And I think that relationship has really created certain expectations of Facebook that it do a much better job than it has of moderating content, right? Because Facebook Facebook has a lot of agency in choosing what you see by way of the algorithm. So let's take Substack. So Substack's founders have presented themselves as an explicit alternative to the algorithm. It's a way of getting away from being fed something by a platform. And instead, they present themselves as sort of just purely back-end that facilitates connections between reader and writer. So if you're interested in reading China Talk, you seek out Jordan's Substack and you subscribe. It's not like anyone, it's not like Substack, at least in their account of things, is, is forcing China Talk on you. But they should be. Yeah, they should be. That's right. But it, the thing is, it gets, I think what makes Substack difficult to classify is it, it's things that they've done of their own choosing to try and elevate themselves over just a normal email newsletter service. So there's lots of email newsletter services. Lawfare uses one, MailChimp, which has significantly fewer of these features. And so Substack has really chosen to be forward-leaning in recruiting certain writers, for example. So Matt Iglesias, who you mentioned earlier, Quinta, who's a big politics writer, got a huge advance from Substack to, to move to Substack and do his writing for for them. And certain writers get healthcare, certain writers get access to a legal defense fund to help deal with certain you know, liability claims of, of one sort or another, right? So there's a way in which that takes them into this weird gray area where they're not really a social media platform in the traditional sense. There's, there's not really that much that's social about it, but they're also not really just a backend newsletter site. And they're also not really a traditional media operation to the extent that we think about how that shapes our expectations. So they're really in this gray area. And I'd argue that that's partially by their own choosing, which is a, a clever business model, but it also, they perceive it as giving them this freedom to sort of chameleon their way out of being responsive to certain content moderation expectations, I think. So Jordan, I'm I'm curious to hear about your experience as a Substack writer. You know, the the main social media platform I use is Twitter. I think I myself and most other people I know on Twitter have had some level of interaction with like Twitter HQ, you might call it, right? Whether to get a verification badge or because 
someone reported your tweet or you reported somebody else's tweet. There is a kind of a general acknowledgement and relationship with, you know, management, as it were, whether that relationship is friendly or not. Have you had interactions with Substack HQ as a writer? Like, have you ever run into content moderation issues with your Substack? Uh, No. As one of the minnows, not the sharks in the Substack ecosystem, as much as I would have loved a $500,000 advance to kick off my rinky-dink China Talk newsletter, I was never offered such a deal, tragically. You know, it, the platform is 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 very hands-off in the sense of there's not a ton of sort of hand-holding that you necessarily need to get up and going, which I think is one of the reasons that it's been able to have so much success. I mean, the the... The amount of time it would take to start up your newsletter and start accepting payments from people is probably, you know, in the realm of, of of five to ten minutes. All you have to do is connect a Stripe account and get going. So, so no, personally, I have not at all had any sort of pushback when it comes to when it comes to content moderation. I will say though that Substack is outside of the Great Firewall in China, mainly due to its launching with Sinicism, which is a a newsletter which is more than occasionally critical of the CCP. That's really interesting. Do you think it, it wouldn't have been banned if it hadn't launched alongside with Sinicism as a major product? It would have happened eventually, I think. Basically, this is sort of like the life cycle of any new consumer content property in China. For instance, uh, Clubhouse, which is the one of the day, isn't banned yet. Last night, I was in a, uh, a clubhouse group in which you know, people were talking all about Hong Kong and, and politics and, and you know, what democracy would look like in China, those sorts of conversations. The Chinese government has no interest in letting people have on the mainland. So I would be shocked if it took more than a week or two for you know, that app to get the boot. So things in general in China can sort of live under the radar for a while, but eventually once platforms get enough traction, then everything from uh, SoundCloud to Pinterest has been banned. So uh, something as as sort of overtly newsy as a substack almost inevitably would have ran into this problem on mainland China. Hamish McKenzie, one of the co-founders, it was a uh, Hong Kong-based reporter for a number of years and has a uh, intimate familiarity with the Chinese news environment. And he, I think, very early on realized that, you know, launching with Sinicism would mean that a China growth angle was probably never going to be in the cards. Jacob, this is within the United States. There's also talk about Substack and and censorship, Um, but in a bit of a different sense, there's kind of a, a reputation that... Substack is where you go if you're a writer and you think that you've been censored or canceled or what have you. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that connects to the content moderation questions? Yeah. So one component of Substack's meteoric rise has been the way in which it gets talked about. And I don't think, to my knowledge, at least at least in the beginning stages, there wasn't a lot of talk from Substack about this. It was mostly people talking about Substack as this. So the perfect example is Glenn Greenwald, who is the founding editor of The Intercept, which is a news publication. And Greenwald left The Intercept and announced that news by way of a substack, a new substack, in which he fleshed out a very long substack essay pushing baseless theories about Hunter Biden, basically. And the kicker to his essay on Substack and the the main thing that people took away from it and that he was very clear about is that he perceived the editors at The Intercept by forcing him to go through the the trouble of fact-checking some of his claims and by forcing him to cite specific evidence was being censored, that there was this 
you know, monopoly of editorial control and he needed to be free from it. So that's why he moved to Substack. And that's the extreme version of this example, but there's also smaller, smaller examples. So Andrew Sullivan, who Quinta, you'd mentioned as well, who's a writer at New York Magazine, pretty famous writer, has gotten himself into lots of different controversies. And he leaves New York Magazine and he starts the Substack. And the the pickup of this Substack account is that Andrew Sullivan was being you know, censored and he he had to dance around all of his editors at New York Magazine. So now he's free to do whatever he wants at Substack. Right. So I think there's the way in which as Substack grew in popularity in the US, it's it, it grew with this reputation that it was this place where you went if you were, for whatever reason, perceived yourself as as being, you know, censored or canceled, whatever. So the way in which that impacts, at least in my view, the moderation thing is on the one hand, it sort of makes I think people who study the content moderation space little bit wary, right? It's it's a bit of a dangerous thing to have a platform that exists as a place where people go to not have things fact-checked or to be able to say whatever they want without normal editorial control. And I think when that's happening, there's always this danger that something is going to go wrong, right? That at some point, someone is going to say something that isn't just controversial, but is it passes the pale of what a lot of people would expect a platform to moderate. I mean, you know, it's not like fact checkers never get things wrong. And it's not like there aren't other places in the world where people can write things without, you know, having the New Yorker fact check team make sure everything they said is correct. So can you talk a little more about, Jacob, like why, in fact, a sort of not New York Times fact checked world is any more scary than the world we're already living in for the sort of broader content ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fair question, right? I think part of it cards on the table like Quinta and I are editors at a news publication I think we're we're sympathetic to the idea that editing is a way to ensure things are rigorous and correct right so we want to protect our profession right there's there's some guild interest here but I think beyond that I don't know it's I think Jordan to answer your question it's it's not just the mere fact of not being fact checked it's it's the Creating a product where the expectation is that there isn't going to be any pushback on substantive claims made is is an interesting experiment, but it's also one where you're sort of backing yourself into a corner. And I think we'll talk more about this, backing yourself into a corner for when something really does go wrong, that you're going to struggle to at least rhetorically justify what you're doing to people who had previously perceived you as this oasis away from that stuff. And by you, you mean the the Substack leadership. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so Jordan, you've experienced both posting on Substack and being edited at Lawfare by, by Jacob and myself, in fact. So talk a little bit about like what the, what the difference in process is. I mean, do you, do you think there's something there in terms of the difference in product that comes out being edited and not edited and the, the danger of controversy or is that overblown? You know, I feel like Writing with you guys is sort of like, to continue my basketball analogies, doing really boring drills that are really important. So like, you know, taking 100 three-point shots and, you know, shooting with your left hand from the top of the key 10 times or what have you, as opposed to writing on Substack, which is kind of just like messing around, like playing three-on-three with your friends. And, you know, if you want to really put out super 
high quality bulletproof stuff, which there most certainly is a need for, for a happy democracy to function. I think it's really important for folks, for journalists not to, uh, you know, have people pushing back and not necessarily get over their, you know, get ahead over their skis and, and, and really be forced to, um, you know, back up their claims and make sure that they've thought everything out and, and have the right structure that sort of reads particularly well. But I will say though, there, there is something to the freedom and creativity that you get having your own platform where, you know, I don't necessarily have to write in a quote unquote lawfare style. You know, I can, I can have more memes or I can have different languages or, um, you know, be more creative in, in the sort of topics I, I discuss. So, you know, I, I feel like at some point in the relatively near future, you know, Substack will start hiring Jacobs and Quintas. And, you know, maybe there'll be a way for these writers to sort of get a bit of the best of both worlds. So let's talk specifically about this blog post that Substack put out recently, which they titled their their views on content moderation. And Jacob, this is really the substance of the lawfare piece that you wrote in early January. Can you walk through just what Substack said in that piece? Yeah, so I think as an initial matter, Substack really, in this piece, they they really doubled down on the types of things that we've been talking about here. So they they present their platform as this place where free ideas are important. They're they're not interested in being, I think they call it the moral police or, or things along those lines. And, and pursuant to that, they're going to take what they call a hands-off approach to content moderation. And to sort of justify that position, they they talk a bit about how Along the lines of what we talked about earlier, they have different incentives than the big platforms. They make their money by getting a cut of each subscription rather than through ads that are you know, fed by algorithms. So they, they do a lot of work, at least in their view, to try and justify what they're saying. But the end takeaway is that on Substack, you know, freedom of ideas and freedom of expression is, is important. And you know, it, it's really a rehash of the types of things that people would say about the internet, maybe circa like 2014. Like, we don't want to be the arbiters of truth, basically. And so, yeah, I mean, reading the blog post, it does feel a little bit like they hopped in a time machine, went back five years and are sort of looking at content moderation, thinking like, oh, wow, how easy. We'll just use your light touch. Uh, like the the New Yorker ran a piece by Anna Wiener on Substack, where she she said that the content moderation decisions are made by the founders, which is kind of an astonishing thing um, when you think about how this platform could potentially scale going forward and the amount of work that would be. So you were skeptical, I guess I would say, of some aspects of the of the post. I think partly for the reasons I just laid out. Can you talk through a little bit, like what rang strangely to you? Yeah. So so there are a few things. I think first of all they. It's an interesting thought experiment to present themselves as completely not beholden to the algorithm. And thus, you know, the, the argument goes that since we don't rely on, you know, controversies and flare ups to get traffic like Facebook or like Twitter does, there's this baseline atmosphere that's set where things are likely to be less inflammatory, right? Is the implication. And I'd argue that that's probably not true, given that Substack and Anna Wiener talks about this in her piece in The New Yorker's. Substack writers are often completely beholden to Twitter traffic to grow their audience. And Substack as a brand has also benefited enormously from big Twitter controversies. I have in the piece, if people can click on it, there's a graph that I took of the the Google search traffic that Substack got. And 
you know, it's pretty, pretty low for a while. And then Glenn Greenwald releases this very controversial post and it completely explodes and Substack's brand awareness, you know, shoots through the moon. So that's part of it. I think my broader objection, and I think the thing that's going to be a more enduring challenge for Substack is that it's a weird thing to just define content moderation as something that is bad, you know, just to characterize it in in sort of reductive terms and say it's bad and then say, we're not going to do that, right? I don't really think that that represents very well thought out or, you know, sustainable thinking about things for one, because they actually do have terms of service, right? So this would be one thing if, and this this does not exist, but if if Substack just had no rules at all, if you could literally do whatever you wanted. But in reality, Substack has plenty of rules. They have a terms of service like most other publications, and they have they have prohibitions for porn and prohibitions for harassment and prohibitions for hate content or prohibitions for content that promotes harmful or illegal activities. And I think that the argument in the blog post is that these these rules are so narrowly defined as to be meaningless for most people. But I actually don't think that's true at all. Like the, none of these things are particularly easy to to define what the bounds are of, particularly something like hate speech. We Quinta and I talked a lot last week about the Facebook Oversight Board. I mean, this is something that they went through pages and pages of international law discussion to figure out where the where the line is. And so I think they're really putting themselves in this weird situation where they're saying, on the one hand, we don't have rules. But on the other hand, they actually do have rules. And and in the process of of sort of going about that weird dichotomy, they're they're sort of reducing content moderation to something that it isn't. At at its core, it's content moderation is just creating rules and enforcing those rules. And and by them sort of necessarily implying that content moderation is this sort of moral suppression or this politically motivated deletion of speech. And look, maybe in some cases that's true, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case at all. And and by doing that, they're sort of ignoring, you know, taking down something for a copyright violation is content moderation. Taking down child pornography is content moderation, right? So I think they're they're really operating on this reductive definition of content moderation that, that that pins them down in this weird spot, not the least of which because, as you mentioned, Quinta, they don't have any process for deciding whether something violates the rules other than whether the founders say it does. And, and that's really, and we can talk more about this and I think it might be interesting too, but that's really been something that's borne out with other platforms to not at all be a sustainable thing or be something that's conducive to consistent or any sort of content moderation that's perceived as legitimate cannot be happening in a black box. So what's the answer, Jacob? Like, are you are you volunteering yourself for the uh, for the Substack uh, Council of <laughs> Council of High Elders? Exactly. That's that's. I don't know solution. if they have the budget for you yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jordan, I want to ask you because you have some experience, maybe, with the dynamic that Jacob is describing between. Substack and other bigger platforms. Like, do you see a relationship between like your Twitter presence and your China Talk Substack? Like, is there an an interplay there in the way that Jacob describes? So, I, I think the difference between the amount of Substack subscribers and the amount of Twitter followers I have is maybe like three hundred. So, my sense is that like many of the most successful folks on the Substack ladder 
were able to create either sort of mega platforms a la Andrew Sullivan or, you know, nice small businesses for themselves because they already had a following, whether that be on a on a Twitter presence or they had a popular podcast beforehand. You know, right now, uh, there aren't really people on Substack looking for other Substacks. Generally, it's, oh, I see someone on Twitter. He or she is interesting. They posted uh, sort of like a, like a Twitter thread about their newest post on Substack. Maybe I'll go check it out, uh, see if it's worth paying for. And that concept of a, of a sort of sales funnel is really important because the amount of conversions you'll get from your sort of free to paid email newsletter is, you know, only in the realm of like two to 5%. Having you know fifty thousand or a hundred thousand Twitter followers would, would would really help you in in, in building your Substack to be something large enough to you know to sustain you financially. And how do you get more followers on Twitter? You start Twitter fights. You say um, inflammatory stuff, and you know occasionally you can kind of like do something that's like really contributing to the discussion on something. But playing dark games on Twitter, if you have a Substack, will almost certainly lead you to more more subscribers. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and it it touches on something that I've thought about a lot, which is that there's an incentive. Ben Ben Smith in the New York Times had an interesting column on this the other day, that having a big Twitter account for a journalist or a writer is in its own way a kind of job security because it could make it harder for your publication to fire you if you have, you know, 200,000 Twitter followers. Or if you do get fired, it can help you land somewhere else, or it can help you get a Substack because those people will sign up to pay you. On the other hand, you're sort of also signing yourself up for this social media dynamic where you get attention and you therefore get that job security by getting in fights, which first off can get you in trouble. And second off is just, you know, not a great way for anyone to spend their time. And then with Substack, there's this additional element where if you have your Substack, you then have an incentive to, you know, be even more incendiary to drive people toward your newsletter, which to me sounds like a a pretty unpleasant cycle, to be completely honest. Jordan, what do you think about that? You know, I don't don't think everything that goes viral on Twitter is necessarily bad. And, you know, there's a difference between sort of being entertained by a Twitter fight and you wanting to pay someone five, 10, $20 a month to learn more about what they think. So, well, there is kind of that dynamic of sort of attention, sort of unhealthy attention getting. Often on on if you curate your Twitter feed right, you tend to have threads which are which are fascinating and you know lead you to want to learn more about a topic or explain something that you haven't come across before. This woman, uh, Lillian Lee, who launched a uh, a new Substack looking at the uh, the Chinese consumer economy, for instance, went from zero to ten thousand. Twitter followers in the past six months, basically by doing, you know, 20 tweet long threads explaining dynamics of uh, sort of leading Chinese companies or the Chinese VC ecosystem or what have you. And I don't think, you know, to take her as an example, has done anything that anyone would construe as kind of like bad for the broader conversation. You know, this is this is sort of parroting some of the stuff that the Substack uh, folks say is it's one thing to sort of be entertained by clickbait on Facebook. But if at the end of the day, you're going to give someone money, you are expecting a different level of content from them. And that at a pretty uh, substantial level, I think changes the incentive structure of just doing kind of attention seeking virally stuff versus giving people real value, whether that be through journalism or analysis or recipes or what have you. 
Yeah, look, so I agree with both of you. And I, I think as it relates to the sort of Substack content moderation problem, I see two things going on. So, so the first is that unlike the New York Times, you actually can just continue your inflammatory Twitter thinking in a Substack. And people actually do that all the time. Like, whereas your editors at the New York Times are not going to allow you to continue whatever thing you were going on about on Twitter, that that is actually something that people do on Substack. So for one, that's, I think, a relevant factor. But I think the more relevant thing, Jordan, I completely agree with everything you're saying. But at the same time, the underlying point that the Substack guys are making in this blog post, which is that you know, Substack is is completely liberated from the sort of algorithmic pressures that have driven bad behavior on Twitter and on Facebook. I just don't think that that's that's just not true, right? Like that Substack. Yes, it's the case that I'm not going to pay for a Substack where someone is just pontificating and you know bloviating about in the same way that they would on Twitter. But it's also the case that I'm not going to hear about someone's Substack in many cases, unless they've written one Substack column that's completely blown up on Twitter because it contains some sort of controversial nugget or whatever. So I think, yes, you're you're absolutely correct that there is some sort of fundamental difference between the type of thing that you could be tweeting about and that that, that goes over well on Twitter versus something that people have to sit with and pay for on Substack. Yes, completely true. But on the other hand, it's not the case, as these guys presented in their blog posts, that Substack is liberated from these pressures. And I don't think they're being necessarily like deliberately misleading or anything, but I think there's a way in which you can glorify what's happening on one platform without sort of thinking about how the incentive structures of all these things overlap. I guess, Jacob, you know, everything you said is true, but if we're sort of taking a step back and looking at like what is better or worse for this future of kind of content in the world. I think having Substack or another sort of way or another company where it's relatively straightforward for individuals to monetize the creation of their content has already led and I think will continue to lead to more people being able to cover really niche things. And given as Quinta opened with the sort of like newsrooms being cut by two thirds over the past 20 years, anything that is going to help more people write about important topics is something that uh, we shouldn't necessarily dismiss just because they haven't hired Jacob to run their uh, content moderation processes yet. Yeah, I mean, so Jacob, what what are your thoughts on that in terms of whether Substack is a good or a bad actor in this system? Yeah, so I, I love Substack, to be clear. like I, I think Substack does accomplishes a lot of important things, and I learn a lot from writers like Jordan and from even writers who write about way more niche things than China on Substack. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I do think it serves an important function, but two things can be true at once. I think that, yes, they're, they're really good uses of Substack, but I also think that this posture that they've taken and the way that they've articulated this position as it pertains to content moderation just is not sustainable, right? So I, it's fine. The platform on balance, I think, is probably... A good thing and, and has lots of value. But I, I do think that it's not mutually exclusive that that can be true. And it's also the case that they might want to give a little bit more thought to developing a robust content moderation philosophy, regardless of the normative place where they end up with it, at least having something that's you know transparent and clearly scaffolded with rules. I, I, I think it's hard to argue that that would be a bad thing. And I actually don't think 
that just removing some of this rhetorical window dressing that they've given to their content moderation position would do that much at all, if anything, to sort of mitigate the positive things that Jordan talked about. I think that that also gets to Jordan's point gets to something important, which is that when we're trying to think about healthy, you know, what a healthy media ecosystem looks like or what Whitney Phillips might call an unpolluted media ecosystem, a big part of that is having media that is good and informative. And Jordan, to, to your point, right, we're talking about this in an environment where a lot of news organizations are struggling. There are a lot of local news deserts. I certainly don't think that Substack is going to like save local journalism. I mean, if it can, that would be great, but I'm I'm not waiting on it. But on the other hand, if there is a way in which this platform sort of helps employ journalists and help people write about useful, good substantive stuff, then it arguably, you know, it is for the good. So I think it will be it will be interesting to to see how this plays out. Jordan, is there anything that you're looking out for when it comes to how Substack might evolve in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think Jacob's right. The rubber is going to hit the road at one point, at a certain point, and they're going to have to make a really tough call on content moderation, which is going to get people upset. And you know, I do think, and I'm going to come back to this. I mentioned this earlier. It's it's really interesting that one of their founders is a journalist, um, which is very different from the likes of Mark Zuckerberg. And I don't know exactly how that is sort of going to play out. I think you're seeing it play out right now and them trying to sort of realize the vision of the sort of lifestyle, which wasn't necessarily possible back when Hamish was writing full time in the um, uh, 2000s and early 2010s. Jacob, any closing thoughts? Yeah, so I think Jordan is right. The one thing that I would pick up on that that Jordan said and the way that he framed it is that these what he said is that these founders, right, are going to face there's going to be a tough call, right? There's going to be something that that is a really hard decision, and I think the way that Substack has positioned themselves in in two ways, both in the sort of rhetorical position that we're not going to moderate things and also in the sort of structural reality that it's these three guys that are making this decision. That sets up whenever that decision comes. And you know, I joked when Trump got banned from all these different platforms that he was going to head over to Substack. I don't really think that's going to happen, but you know, something something worse than that is going to happen at some point. And the way that these guys have have set up their moderation ecosystem is going to mean that instead of whatever decision they have to make, let's say there's a really popular vaccine disinformation Substack. Right. So if the time comes and they do end up banning it, instead of them being able to articulate, look, we have always had a rules based content moderation system. You can see how we make these decisions and you can see, you know, the different subclause of the policy in our terms of service that this violates. It's going to end up being like another blog post of the founders talking about how much of a challenging decision this was for them and how pain they were to you know, double back on Substack's founding ethos. And I, I just don't think that... like Fundamentally, I don't think that that's the right way to be doing things. And all it would take would be for them to build out their terms of service and maybe be more specific and, and to sort of abandon this posture of it's the three kings that make the decision. And whenever that decision comes, it will be perceived as much more legitimate and also won't be sort of coded in this pained, conscious thing that I I really don't think 
I just don't think that that plays anymore. I think that like people who watch the content moderation space, there, there's a real expectation and for good reason that these tech platforms move away from a structure where it's just the consciousness of of these omnipotent founders that make the decisions as opposed to at least pretending whether it's actually a rules-based system or not, at least, and I'm channeling Evelyn here, at, at least gesturing to the fact that there are rules and we've enforced the rules and that's why we've done this. And and they're really just not setting themselves up to do that. Yeah. I don't know though, Jacob, because I feel like, like, sure, whatever, they can hire three lawyers and have something, you know, write all this stuff out on paper, but you know, like norms change. And we've seen this really dramatically over the past, uh, over the past six months when it comes to this sort of stuff. And just because you have it written down doesn't make banning the president from a platform any less shocking and any less of a decision that really at the end of the day was made, you know, by the people at the top of these organizations. So try as you might to sort of like set up, set up sort of legal boundaries that you'll then end up before and just saying, and just point to the rules afterwards. I feel like whatever the controversy is going to be, it's going to be something that like, yeah, there may be a regulation, but it's going to be a C-suite level decision regardless. So yeah, I don't really know how much having a more built out uh, content moderation policy will save them in the future from the pain, uh, whether that be blowback from broader consumers or leading uh, Substack people who are on Substacks who want to change and go to a platform that has you know, a different uh, principles with regards to content moderation going forward. So I really think there's no, there's no easy way out of this. And you, you, you may very well see two to three years from now, a Substack like platform where the judgment calls on these sort of things come down in a different direction. Yeah, look, I that's all fair. I, I think at the end, and this is something that Evelyn Dweck wrote about when when Trump got banned from Twitter, is that there's there's a bit of a choice right between two different myths. There's the myth that the founders know best and that they're the ones who are going to make these decisions, and then on the other hand, there's the myth that these are all you know rules based, more formalistic decisions. Neither of those things are true. My my point is just that I think one of them is a more sustainable model going forward. Quinta, I'm curious, you know, you follow this pretty closely. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know, look, I think that the the wonder of content moderation is that, as you've both been saying, at some point the rubber is going to hit the road and there is going to be, you know... Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to start a Substack, and the company is going to have to decide what to do with that. And so we're going to see how it will fall down. I, I do think that you know it is striking that I think social media companies have learned a lot over these last four or five years that Substack's blog posts that we've discussed seem to be sort of innocently written without any real gesture toward those very hard lessons. And so when the time comes and the company really has to make a tough decision here. I will be very interested to see whether they take an approach that seems to be incorporating the lessons learned by those other platforms or whether they continue to try to kind of reinvent the wheel. On that note, Jacob, Jordan, thank you both for joining us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. 
and thanks for listening.